Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Last week we discussed what happens when you lose your virginity and whether you can survive it. We examine both male and female virgins in fictional narratives spanning books, film and TV. We generally agreed that losing your virginity is a bad thing unless it results in you giving birth to the saviour of the world. Now we are turning our attention to villainesses. So Megan and Lucy, in your opinion, what makes a good villainess and what makes a bad one? Well, uh, the the obvious for me is a bad female villain is one who uses her sexuality as a weapon. A, it's lazy writing. It's cliched beyond belief. And it's irritating because men, male villains, don't ever get sort of brushed with that same thing. You know, when was the last time we saw a male villain whose sort of villainy was so closely linked to their sexuality and uh, how using sort of sexuality to seduce people, using sexuality in a load of different ways that are just, it's kind of, it's the opposite of the, the virginal piece where the virgin is pure and good. The villain, she is that way because, you know, she sleeps around. And that's sort of the the obvious one for me i completely agree i i my first my number one was sexual stereotyping i mean i i actually i'm not averse to sexy villainesses just as long as sexiness isn't her defining feature or the root of her power rather like you know chastity is the root of a virgin's power that's where you get into kind of cliche territory and i think it's hackneyed and really unrealistic and a huge double standard in that we don't see that reflected in male villains well i could offer my two pence worth but it would pretty much be repeating exactly what the two of you said that sexual stereotyping it's using um sex as a as a powerful weapon i suppose if i was playing devil's advocate i might throw out dracula there as a an example of a villain that uses sex to kind of get what he wants but again in a weird way for um for Dracula, I suppose the sex was a way to get the blood that he needed rather than anything else. So I'm not really sure if he counts. What do you think, Megan? Well, yeah, I'm I think, sure. actually, sorry, I think it's a good example. <laughs> but what if most of his vi- victims are kind of asleep? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he just, and does he actually have, I'd have to go back, it's been a long time since I've read the book, but does he actually have sex with them or is he just sort of, you know, kind of well, close to them? I would confine this to just, Bram Stoker's original, which is very good, but okay. um, because come on, we, I'm sorry, but the yeah, thing that's just if popped you into my head is Gary Oldman. Yeah. come on, <laughs> would you say no? <laughs> and also, he is really hot, and I think maybe that they, the filmmakers of that, were just picking up on um, on on that. Well, I mean, Dracula is inherently sexy. He's he's inherently other. He's not like the traditional polite western gentleman he comes from the east from a land that's unknown that's wild that's unbridled you know and and it's those characteristics that he carries with him when he comes to you know to london to and, and enters the ha- the homes of these you know quite virginal repressed young women so i think he is quite a good example of um you know of a, a male villain using his sexuality as a weapon. I'd say that that's very true of some of the, the adaptations, but not so true of the original. Given Probably, that, yeah. Um, so in the original, he 
he doesn't actually use his sexuality in the sense that he he sort of sneaks in in, in the night and such. Uh, I mean, he uses his sexuality in in the terms of um, his weird women or the the three uh, brides of Dracula, as they later became known. Um, but in terms of his sort of innocent victims, it's all kind of done by stealth more so than... Ah, I have a question for you then. What happens? There's a bit in the middle of the book where Mina tear- is tearing out the pages of her diary. And because Dracula is written in the epistolary form, is Stoker perhaps... Was that a deliberate... Did he put that bit in deliberately to say... to? possibly hint that Mina had romantic feelings for Dracula and had was standing on the ship tearing those pages out to so the reader couldn't ever discover that she did in fact betray Jonathan. Oh <laughs> good question. I don't know, but because oh, like I said, it's been a long time, but Mina survives, doesn't she? Yes. Yeah. So I feel like <laughs> If, if we're talking, going back to the virgins, I feel like if she had betrayed him, then she wouldn't have survived. But maybe that's, yeah, I don't know. Good question. It's an interesting thought. And certainly when you, um, Lisa was talking about the Gary Oldman one, and I remember when that very scene, when they have, um, oh, what's her name? <clears throat> Uh, Winona Ryder standing on the the ship, the deck of the ship and tearing out her pages exactly as they say. You definitely get the very strong impression that there was something very sexual between her her and Dracula. Um, but I mean, one of the things that I tend to find, I tend to really hate about female villains um, is the way that they're sexualized, particularly in relation to their um, their clothes and their you know the sort of general way they dress. And I know that Megan sent around um, a load of links, one of which was a link to, um, let me see if I have it here, um, the problem with female superheroes from Scientific American. And it was sort of looking at that and saying that even the superheroines are so sexualized and achieve such impossible feats that they still appear unattainable and are pretty much bad role models for children and young women. So why do we think it is? Even when you've got this this fantastic woman with this amazing power that she's still really very much sexualized from the name, um, which sounds like some kind of high-class prostitute to compared to something like Superman or Spider-Man or something like that, which is very sort of um, straightforward. Literal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and they have, um, it's difficult because I mean, they have all these super tight clothing, but then I mean, so do all the, the guys as well. But there's certainly always a lot of cleavage. I mean, what do you girls think about that? Do you think that, um, female villains and female heroes are, are sexualized in ways that are rarely done with their, their male counterparts. Absolutely. I mean, one of the sort of most recent, well, actually it's a few years old now, but uh, an example of this was sadly uh, one of Whedon's projects, actually, which would be the Avengers. And if you look at the poster for the Avengers, the pose that Scarlett Johansson has is absolutely ridiculous. And at the time, there were a bunch of people, you know, doing their own kind of art and, you know, pretending like putting um, Steve Rogers in that position or Thor in that position. You know? And it, it just looks utterly bonkers. And you're sitting there going, how how is it that not only is this sort of kind of gross in the sense that she's like that, but that we look at that and don't immediately think that it looks ridiculous because we see it all the time. And I mean, comics are really terrible for this when and 
you know it's it's talked about a lot in the way that their costumes are designed you know they're Wonder Woman and her tiny, tiny outfits, or you know, Poison Ivy, Catwoman, Emma Frost, you know, all these comic book women who not only, you know, absolutely use their sexuality as a weapon, but some of them, even so, someone like Poison Ivy, her whole thing is sort of these seduction powers and her sexy brainwashing and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's, um, well, I, I go, my Batman sort of references tend to be from the animated series. So there's an episode where <laughs> um, she actually uses like her poison gas to like, uh, but it, to knock people out, but she um, puts it into a perfume. So it's like her sexiness and she's you know spraying her perfume. Oh, doesn't she smell divine? Oh, there you go. Knocked out. And it's kind of... <laughs> In a way, you know, you kind of think, okay, well, she's, you know, she's being clever in a way, but it, it's just, it's sad that it always comes down to women sort of using their sexuality to get somewhere. And and that's the bit that I, I have an issue with. I know, I really have nothing to add. I completely agree. <laughs> okay. no, I, I, I can't, I was trying, I was just sitting there as Megan was talking, I was just trying to, uh, racking my brain to see if I could think of any, um, you know, villainess that jumped to mind that didn't dress in a provocative way. Um, and the only one I can was was really thinking of was Cersei from Game of Thrones and the TV show, because I haven't read the books. I mean, she just wears fairly normal, nice clothes, but not necessarily provocative clothes. Um, but I thought we'd save her for later anyway. So obviously we've been talking about how both female villains and um, female heroes as well with the superheroes can be very sexualized. Uh we don't really seem to see a lot of, of that in men and in male villains who have sex because they like sex, but don't actually use sex as a tool the way that um, uh, the way that females do. So you get obviously the Bond villainesses like um, the girl in Pierce, with Pierce Brosnan in Die Another Day where she sleeps with him to lick his gun. Um, but you contrast that perhaps with the Sheriff of Nottingham um, who was in The Prince of Thieves, uh, Kevin Costner's one, and uh, there's just one throwaway point where he is really pissed off with Robin Hood and just points to two of his concubines and says to one of them, you, my room, 12.45, you, 11.30, and bring a friend. And it's it's just a wonderful throwaway line that obviously this is a man who is, you know, has sexual urges and everything, but they don't define him as a character. And certainly I can't think of any men that use sex as a weapon, but I could count, I'd run out of fingers trying to count the, the number of women who do? And what do you ladies think of that? Do you think that I'm right in that assessment? Are there plenty of men out there who use sex as, as well as women? Or do you think it's very much a, a female thing that the writers have focused on? Well, I think it's, I think you're completely right. I, I mean, it's very hard to, um, you know, to bring to mind uh, an example of a, a man who uses sex in the same way that uh, a woman does. The only one I can think of, which is possibly not a great example since it's a comedy, is, of course, Austin Powers. <laughs> of course um so you know and that's i just think there's there's that iconic scene where he explodes the fembots with his extreme virility <laughs> and sexiness and uh but it's it is as i say it's a comedy it's a piss take um I, it's not a really serious example uh, it is out there but maybe you know i think that, that film was uh, that element of the film um of all three films actually i mean it's kind of really why they were made in the first place possibly to highlight that it's so ridiculous when 
applied to a man because actually what he's doing i know it's taken to almost slapstick extremes but really his whole you can't resist my sexual energy my like mojo that whole thing it, it does crop up a lot in with with female characters and very often female villainesses uh, but it doesn't crop up very often with men so i think that's why the film is so funny because it, it's actually doing something that you know you see very rarely in in books or films this comes to sort of the the whole thing with men being driven by their penis obviously i i disagree with the whole women using their sexuality in this way but when it comes down to it would a woman really be kind of swayed or just overcome with desire enough to give it up to a man for whatever his you know evil plan is i don't know it, it seems like women use sexuality because men will fall for it in a sense now that's an interesting idea so, yeah so if you wanted to nick a, a villainess's gun you wouldn't sleep with her because she wouldn't be as daft as bond to leave a gun underneath the pillow whereas exactly. it yeah actually the woman is more intelligent than the man because she's playing she's actually playing him it's a good point and actually i wonder about your um about your Austin Powers example, Lucy, sort of thinking about it. There is another way of reading it. You could say that, yes, he's talking about all this sort of sexual prowess that he has, but, and I, I mean, no disrespect to Mike Myers, who is a very cute looking young man, <laughs> but in Austin Powers, he's not particularly aesthetically pleasing. And whether it's this idea that women have to be, you know, strong and sexy and, and fall at the feet of even the most geeky bad teeth kind of guy and it's it's almost like well the girls have to be uber sexy to get their way but any old guy can do it and have women falling at his feet i i always kind of had that interpretation um and i took it as that kind of satire rather than the way you're suggesting yeah i do you know what? i've never actually sat down and analyzed austin powers before so <laughs> is this going to be like the bog of eternal stench all over again where we try it to may well descend into theory. the bog well we obviously talked about what we don't like in and sort of female villains but what do you like seeing in your female villains and I think probably the best way of, of discussing that is looking at some of our favorite female villains and sort of saying why we like them so let's think of some really bad ones because I know you you both gave me a list of, of bad examples and good examples um and there was quite a lot on there that we uh, that we seem to agree on so um Megan yeah. why don't you give us some first well um talking about bad examples I think the other thing that does come up time and time again is the whole um, sort of the motivation for Villainess's evil as such uh, is to do with her looks. You know, it's about staying youthful, staying beautiful. And then sort of the, you know, the archetype for this would be Snow White's evil queen. She, you know, does all these evil things because she wants to be the hottest in the land, you know. She wants to be the most beautiful and so on. And, and you get that a lot, um even in Game of Thrones, when uh, is it Rhaegar um, overlooks his actual wife and declares uh, Ned's sister the beautiful oh. and loveliest, whatever, and all that That's kind of right, thing. Yes. Um, and you know, a similar thing. Even going back to mythology, you have um, you know Hera and Aphrodite fighting over who's the most beautiful woman in the world, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's often um, an, an example of a bad uh, female character and uh, female villain and the other one um that i'm thinking of is the new version of maleficent which i have to say that i did quite like it um but i didn't 
like the fact that she be she she starts out as the protagonist. She's the one we're with, but then she becomes evil in inverted commas when she's rejected by the boy she likes. And that to me, when you have a woman who goes on a rampage or you know becomes the baddie because a boy disses her. I'm sorry, but that's just absolutely pathetic. <laughs> I really dislike <laughs> it. Um so those two are, are big pet peeves for me. Um and I know that this is one where Lucy will is going to disagree with me. Um yep. so <laughs> in Stardust you have uh, the the witches in there and they're really awful but and sort of their um conniving etc the the threat level that's continued throughout the story um is from them chasing after the star because they want to what is it to eat her heart um to stay young and beautiful and that again to me is the same thing as kind of the snow white um evil queen and so on ah yes but lamia is one of my favorite um character villainous characters i well one i don't know this is gonna undermine my own argument but michelle fife is really hot and she (laughs) just is a great actress and just plays the character really really well and i think the whole um seeking lost youth i i don't feel like we can ascribe it you know wholly to you know uh villainesses because actually it's it ties in with things like the philosopher's stone and actually seeking to extend life indefinitely and and actually a lot of that is to do with being young indefinitely rather than just living um you know a long time um so i feel like you're okay that you know that i suppose i suppose they big up the fact that that is you know kind of quite a motivation really that they actually the reason why they want the star is to kind of regain their lost youth um i feel like it's been so many years since i read the book that i can't remember if there was actually any you know if gaiman was talking about any other kind of motive motive that they had um i don't know why i am defending her really because it seems quite a shallow kind of uh, a goal on the surface but I don't know. I just thought that she, that that, that Lamia in particular, was just um, really quite charismatic and someone who you'd love to hate. Yeah, I mean, I, I like her as a character and I do enjoy her, but at the same time, you know, they, they are they do it to get to be beautiful again, and then as soon as she eats it, she, you know, she's admiring herself, and then again she goes on to then once she's beautiful again, she then uses her sexuality to get to further herself in the story. So again. It's about That's true. She her does. beauty and her sexuality. How yeah, does she again. use her sexuality to um, to advance her story? I don't remember that. Um, well, she has the inn, and she, you know, is a beautiful disguises herself as a comely innkeeper. Well, that just um, makes her more more trustworthy, doesn't she? But uh, to be honest, um, I, I could kind of see both sides of you from from what you're saying. I mean, Stardust is one of my favourite books and one of my favourite films, and I must admit, I've watched the film more recently than I've read the book. Um, I think the idea is that what Lucy was saying, that trying to um, stay young and beautiful is a good reason, one that we all understand, let's face it. Um, And you think about something with Interview with a Vampire, where you've basically got a load of blokes running around um, nibbling each other's necks, trying to stay young and beautiful and and be the hottest one in town and live a fantastic life. So I don't think it's necessarily um, a female-orientated motivation, but I think it is more often used outside of the vampire um, genre, obviously. It's more often used for women. Women do seem to be the ones who are subject to 
wanting to stay young and beautiful because that's where their power is whereas you get sort of grizzled old warriors like um sean connery and highlander and things who who their motivation is more revenge and things like that because obviously once guys get a bit older they're they're sort of distinguished and um I suppose veterans in a way, whereas when women get older, they just end up, I suppose, becoming villainesses, which seems a little unfair, really. Well, I think that's. I think you've hit on a very important point, which is mm-hmm. that double standard of um, of having. Well, you know, like I can think of many, many, you know, more, as you say, distinguished um, older men uh, who whose kind of sexiness and appeal seems to grow rather than shrink with their with their advancing age. Um, and, and why, you know, I think I mean, I think it's it's a very uh, it's something that's grown over centuries and has just been um, kind of solidified and and. and well, by I think by the media, by constant media attention, by magazines, by images, by cinema, um, by books, by films, this whole idea that, you know, women uh, are are only, I don't know, they're only viable when they're young and beautiful. And, and when, once that's once that era has passed for them, then they kind of fade into irrelevance, uh, which is is terrible, really. And the fact that 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 that's still actually cropping up, you know, again and again in, in um, film and literature. Do you have any examples yourself, um, Lucy, of particularly bad examples of uh, of villainesses that you'd like to share with us? Really bad. Right. Well, now I was I was thinking uh, this is I'm a bit kind of in in two minds about this one. Um, I was remembering my least favourite Disney film growing up, which was The Little Mermaid. I really hated that film. And I'm really glad that after watching a bit of it today that I that I, you know, had that opinion. Um, but I was I was thinking about Ursula and and how she's she breaks the norm for a villainess in that she's quite she's she is sexual she's definitely she exudes sexual maturity but she's not attractive and she doesn't necessarily use that sexuality to 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 gain um you know or, or, or actually she's far more she uses intellectual manipulation the fact that ariel is young and inexperienced um and and she's kind of almost in awe of ursula's kind of, of maturity and power and she kind of feels like maybe ursula can give her something that she can't get herself um so i was thinking oh yeah this is actually really interesting that she actually could be a, a villainess that breaks the mold and then I looked up the ending because I couldn't quite remember how uh, Ursula gets defeated. Because to be honest, she grows into a titan and you think, well, how is she going to be stopped now? Oh, and then Eric comes along with a, sorry, but phallus. very phallic yep. prowl of <laughs> and runs it into her. <laughs> she dies. And you're like, I'm sorry, did this just happen? It was like a, a rotting ship that she scraped off the seabed one there's no possible way it would ever have actually rammed into her but i was too i was more concerned with the 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 whole kind of penetration element of it i just thought this is just dreadful it was going so well and that's how you use that's that's the way that they or that's the the imagery that they use to bring her down have you ever noticed that but now Um, it's it's all i can think about now (laughs) sorry (laughs) yeah i'm trying to think i suppose if you think about it ursula we're going back again to that whole idea of wanting sort of life and and beauty because certainly she 
But does she, though? I, I mean, it's difficult because you don't really know what her ultimate aim is. It's just to become queen, isn't it? She wants to be the... Um, she wants to usurp Ariel's father as, like, queen of the ocean. Yeah, but you see, I think she's... I think she's quite a good example of a, a villainess. I'm going to have to disagree here, I think, because you're oh, right. No, no, I think she is a good... No, no, I, I think she is a good example. I thought she was one of the best that I could dredge up. It was only that um, I was unhappy with the way that um, she was defeated. I always see. So she's a good villainess, but at the end she succumbs to um, stereotypical ways of being killed. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can kind of see that. So you're saying that even in those days you get... Um, yeah, you get... Uh, a good villainess can't meet her end in the same way that a good villain could, for example. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was a very, it was, was just, you know, it was completely, um, that that whole last battle sequence is so short uh, in comparison to, you know, some of the longer, um, you know, final battle scenes in Disney mm. films. And particularly with uh, Gaston and the Beast and things like that, where they I have thinking, that whole, yeah. Uh, conversely, that's my favourite Disney film, so... Uh, you have two opposite extremes really and i just think that yeah that whole sequence is really long i mean you could say that it lasts from the time that bell gets shut up in the cellar right up until the kind of final battle where gaston falls off the roof spoilers sorry he's (laughs) (laughs) anyway like it's it's a long time um and and of course gaston is a male villain so i felt a bit shortchanged uh when poor old Ursula gets rammed with the rotting prow of a ship. Yeah, it does seem a, a little bit. And you sort of kind of go, well, why didn't she recognise that danger as well? It is it is a little bit, it does, doesn't really do her character much credit in any, any way you look at it, really, does she? No, that's exactly it. Well, to be honest, to be honest the examples you gave me of uh, bad villainesses, I, I find very little on there to disagree with. The only one I could think of that I could add, which had a, a strong influence on me when I was a kid, was um, Emma Peel from The Avengers. I don't know if you ever watched that when you were younger. But uh, Mrs. Peel was, was a fantastic um, heroine, I thought. And going back to our previous idea of, of virgins, because she was Mrs. Peel, you always assumed that she clearly wasn't a virgin, but she still kicked ass and she wasn't a mother. So she you know, did it on her own account. But there's one where they make her go bad and she basically turns into an S&M mistress and, and is all in, in leather. And I do believe it is some people's favourite episode. Um, I think certain types of people who obviously like to see um, Diana Rigg dressed up in very sexy, incredibly tight leather clothing with a whip. But I just kind of went, well, she's a fantastic woman and she's got lots of brains and she can, she's, you know, the Buffy of her generation. Why is it that when she goes bad, she's automatically going to be the sexual temptress with a whip? It's like, again, is that really the only way you can see this character going bad? Is there not another way with all of her skills and all of her intellect that she could have tried to outwit everybody else? But then I suppose I didn't watch it at the time. Maybe there was, uh, maybe it was one of these early fan ideas that they desperately wanted to see this and, and see the sort of sexual tension being built to a height. But that always disappointed me when I was a kid. Interestingly, when you look at Buffy, you have um, Faith going bad. You know, she's the bad girl, and part of that is Faith's sexuality. She, you know, gets it on with Xander, and then she, you know, there's that epic bit about when she goes after Angel and, and you know she's sort of wriggling on top of him and you know the the whole thing about Faith is, is kind of she is bad, she embraces her sexuality, she dresses in the leather and so forth and it's kind of sad when you think about it that, that for, for a show that was so groundbreaking in so many ways it still had the bad girl who liked to sleep around 
That's true. And I suppose you can trust it with Willow. Didn't she sort of get all angsty about sleeping with Oz and things like that? And uh, yeah, so the good girl is is all sort of stressed about it and wants it to be perfect, whereas the bad girl's like, ah, who cares? Hmm. But I don't know. I suppose there might be something to be said if you've got teenagers watching it that you don't want them to be too promiscuous because Faith was very promiscuous. But at the same time, you can't then balance it by going, well, to be a good girl, you have to abstain and worry about it and stress and, and wear big baggy jumpers. You kind of, I suppose, did did we think that Buffy maybe represented the middle ground? But then again, she slept with Angel and it all went to hell quite literally. So I suppose there's not, despite Joss Whedon's strong female characters, there's still not a very positive sexual message in there when it comes to uh, sex and women, whether they're bad girls or good girls. Uh, Megan, when you sent me your list of good and bad examples, one of them um, that got us thinking was Melisandre, obviously, from um, the Game of Thrones series, both the book and the uh, and the series. So tell us what you're thinking about her and, and why she's a particularly bad example of a, a villainess. Well, it's, it's frustrating because in the series, I find um, the actress very charismatic and she's interesting to watch, but she as a character embodies two of the the pieces that I dislike in that her sort of uh, supernatural power is often expressed through her sexuality she you know has sex to initiate different things one her de- the demon was born from her um you know she meets Jon Snow and immediately wants to fuck him i mean you know we've all been there melisandre he's hot but you know <laughs> keep it in your hands um <laughs> and then you know, once you, you get past that, she, it turns out that she's also actually really old. And her, you know, I'm trying, oh, Game of Thrones spoilers, but <laughs> I'll put a warning in. <laughs> um, you know, she has this special necklace that keeps her looking beautiful and young. And again, so it's this, this thing about her power helps her stay young so that she can use her sexuality to get her what she wants. And it's that kind of, again, it's those same tropes over and over again. And I just would like to see something else. Well, it's interesting you should mention her necklace as well, because obviously I do a a good deal of fairy tales and I've done a lot of reading on it. And you do quite often get magical items that are quite feminine. So you have, um, particularly in Snow White, if you read the original version, she's tempted with a mirror and a brush. uh, Sorry, not a brush, a, a comb and all these trappings like ribbons of you know um very feminine items and they seem to help both magic and temptation um and like you're saying you've got this this youthful necklace from Alessandria, just another way that your power springs from something incredibly feminine whereas of course i remember lucy pointing out in our uh, labyrinth episode about the lipstick that sarah carries with her as she goes around the labyrinth but far from being a source of power she uses it to draw on the cobbles so you've got you know a big balance between attitudes as to how those feminine items are employed within a story this is this is a bit of wild card here uh, but i texted my sister earlier and said could she think of any really good villainesses and she's just got back to me and said umbridge from harry potter which is a great example i think because she it doesn't she's not a stereotype she hasn't been we haven't she's she's more of a kind of mistrunchable which i think my megan might have said yes Did you mentioned mistrunchable Yes, she's a bit in the in the vein of the kind of dreadful teacher, which I, you, I could see, you could say is a stereotype in its own right. But I think in, in what we're regarding what we're talking about tonight is, I think it's you know worth mentioning as as a good uh, example of a good, uh, well done uh, villain or villainess. Um, I mean, everyone absolutely. I mean, 
honestly, she is the most reviled character in, in Harry Potter. She's so annoying and so bad. And yet, you know, I kind of feel like, well, I mean, it's, it's, it is a book for children. So maybe you think, well, Rowling hasn't gone into enormous depth to explore her kind of backstory. But I think she works really well um, as that as a kind of principal antagonist of the Order of the Phoenix. I mean, and that's saying something since, you know, she kind of usurps Voldemort's role in that regard as being antagonist. Um, but, you know, she she doesn't have any of the of the irritating um stereotypical characteristics that we've been discussing tonight very true and she's also um we're talking about sexuality and this is this is certainly something i'd like to discuss in a future podcast but they're all quite a bit older and apparently when women get older they lose their sexual appeal so they do have to rely on other elements to um to be sinister and to be threatening like umbridge you said and the trunchbull who again is one of my all-time favorites but i think another one that uh, megan mentioned since we're on to good examples now was the white witch um both in the books and with was it tilda swinton in the film that was just brilliant and tilda swinton um quite fey but still incredibly sexy i think and is doesn't use her sexuality she is just plain evil i mean you she was your example megan so why don't you talk us through it um, yeah, I just like the fact that her motivation wasn't linked to her uh, sexuality or her looks or any of that. It's just, it was nice that she just, you know, she wanted to make the world winter because she damn well wanted to. And I feel you, girl, because I love the cold. <laughs> but you like Christmas, right? Yeah. Well, that's all right. So if you were, you know, like Empress of the World and you put us all into winter, we'd still be allowed to have Christmas. Because I think that was the perhaps the cruelest thing about the White Witch was it was always winter and never Christmas. Oh. Uh, you forget Megan's from Australia, where it's never cold at Christmas. <laughs> ah, might be, might be. Yeah, it's uh, barbecue time for Christmas. Actually, thinking about the um, uh, sort of older women who are, are not particularly sexual but who make great brilliance another one of a brilliant example and uh, i think megan and i are on the line here where she mentioned mom from futurama and i just love her and hate her at the same time she's just fantastic although i suppose again you've got this idea that she's not a virgin she's now a mother um i don't know whether that changes the dynamics whether there are any good villainesses who are also mothers um I think on one of the articles Megan sent around, they mentioned the alien queen from, you know, who battles Ripley and how she's a sort of villainess and also a mother at the same time. But I don't know whether that's a, an example or allegory that will go anywhere. Well, there's quite a few mothers that are really quite horrible. Like, I mean, I'm immediately thinking of Cersei, so... Oh, yes, let's let Lucy go on, on Cersei, because I know you've been desperate to talk about her, haven't you? <laughs> Oh, not necessarily. Well, I mean, I feel rather like a fraud sometimes talking about Game of Thrones because I haven't actually read the books. <gasps> Leave pause for shocked gasp. <laughs> um, yeah, but I really like the show. And I think um, Lena Headley is just so great at um, portraying that character. Uh, and Cersei is one of the most interesting of all of them, really. I mean, I think um, George R. R. Martin has a talent for creating very, you know, characters that you really come to care about. And that's why it's so devastating when he kills one of them off. Um, <laughs> but I love the fact that Cersei is a mother and that actually um, it's one of her greatest fears and also her greatest kind of acceptance is that, that her children are all going to die. Um, and they do. Sorry, we should really have put a spoiler warning in here. Um, well, that's right, but that's also <laughs> one of the prophecies that you hear quite yes, early on. Exactly. So she knows that it's going to happen and she's 
terrified of it happening and knows that it's going to hurt when it does. Um, and that's and and she people often remark that Cersei Lannister would do anything for her children, um, which you know you would think with a villainess it would kind of go against the flow of of what you know a villainess kind of wants to achieve what the the, the so-called you know the kind of if we go down a very typical stereotypical um meaning you know the, the evil the antagonist wants to achieve because actually you know she is a very complex and multi-layered character uh, and i think the fact that she is a mother is absolutely integral to her struggle absolutely because most of the things that she does that you know are despicable are for her children are for her family are for you know securing their place in the world and without that she wouldn't have the drive that she has to to be such a baddie well that's absolutely fascinating because i read the books previously and then i watched the tv show and then i went back to the books again because um george R. R. martin brought out the most recent massive two-parter that you can use as a doorstop and I had no idea who any of the characters were, so I went, right, I just have to go back to the beginning and read it. And rereading it, I was absolutely amazed at how much they changed the character of Cersei in the TV show, and most importantly, how they changed her to be the mother figure who is doing all of this to look after her children, and she talks about hating Robert Baratheon because of a miscarriage at some point, I think, right in the, the early days. The early days is when it's most noticeable. I think once she gets on, craziness is craziness, however you, you view it. But there was none of that in the book. She was just a crazy-ass bitch, and she was mean and cruel and vindictive. And whilst I think that she is a very nice, well-rounded character and one that you can empathise with, and I think it works really well in the TV show... It shouldn't be disregarded, the fact that they've changed that to bring out all this motherhood stuff in her that just wasn't in the book. She she did love her kids, yes, but they've they've deepened it. And particularly in the first series, all of her motivations when she's talking to, I think it's Ned, and also when she gives advice to Sansa and everything. It's all a very different viewpoint to the one she gives in the books, where she is just plain psycho. Um, and I, I don't know, because I, I like you, I love... I love both versions. I just wondered what made the writers change this, whether they went, well, look, we need our our audience to sympathise with it and they're just not going to sympathise with the psycho, or whether they just couldn't bring themselves to write about a woman who was a plain psycho, a bit like um, Annie Wilkes in Misery, whether it was just a case of, no, that's a a step too far and women can't be like that, or or what what decided them to portray her in that light. Um, if if we're talking about the, the motherhood aspect and the fact that that, that I mean because I obviously had no idea that they'd done that and so all, all I can talk about is her character as I know it through the um, television show uh, I'm sure one of you came up with the example of Mrs Coulter from uh, like the Northern Lights series yeah. uh, Philip Pullman's um, excellent series uh, which of course who is a mother uh, and also um, a, a villainess don't know whose idea that was. was that was Megan's because I don't like these books. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, yeah, this is the thing. Like I thought of her, but I only got through the first one. Oh, I read all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, mm, no. <laughs> well, if we're talking about mothers, then uh, Megan also sent around uh, a link for, I think it was IGN, the top 15 fantasy villains, which had quite a few women in it, which I was quite pleased to see. But one of them was Queen Bavmorda from Willow. Have you guys ever seen that? Yes. Yeah. And no. I mean, she, haven't you? You've not seen no, Willow, I, I haven't. It's oh. terrible. I haven't seen it. But it looked really annoying. So I think you have to watch it bearing in mind what 
generation it was made in and it's it's a bit clunky but it's still got some good bits um and it, it actually, can't be surely as good as lady hawk uh, well nothing's as good as lady hawk especially Thank with you. that um synth you know soundtrack yes <laughs> i don't know lady hawk was very much if i say soft and romantic that doesn't really do much except explain just how kind of brutal willow was i mean you get that bit at the beginning with the, the hands tearing up the nursemaid which i, I could never watch because that just terrified me but you get queen bavmorda who is a mother and has pretty much no maternal feeling towards her daughter at all um and then also turning it around nicely you have um it's val kilmer isn't it who gets the uh, love potion accidentally and falls in love with the young swords woman uh, who is Queen Bavmord's daughter. It's very complicated. I'm sure people who've watched it will know exactly what I'm talking about and I'm not explaining it very well. But it is quite... She's a very good example because she's just insane. And yes, she's a mother, but there's no maternal feelings and there's no sexuality. It's just plain psycho. And I thought that was quite nice and refreshing and also quite scary. Speaking of psychos, Lady Macbeth. Um she just has that wonderful line about um, come, coming to my woman's breasts and taking my milk for ghoul, you murdering ministers. I mean, it's <laughs> pretty cool. Like it was it's an absolute um, rejection uh, of her of her feminine, uh, deeply feminine role in life, which was obviously to, to pr- produce children. Um, and, I, and you could definitely argue that without her as a driving force um Macbeth may never have actually gone ahead with his plan I mean she really was the the hat of the power behind the throne in that regards and I think she's a a really marvelous um what quite an early example of a really great villainess who you know isn't at all um really sexual and, and and actually kind of ends up you know, rejecting her femininity, but not in a masculine way, in more of a complete asexual way, actually. She's almost turns herself into a a kind of dark spirit of murder and and revenge. That's true. And she's so iconic that she has spawned the term of describing a character as a Lady Macbeth. There's a lot of, in in revenge tragedy, again, the women... um, being involved in, in revenge tragedy and causing a lot of pain so things like the Duchess of Malfi and that again it, it did tend to lead, um, link into their sexuality so there, there's definitely you know from the 1600s as examples that we still go to visit go to see at the theatre today and I must admit looking at the good and the bad examples that we've got um, so the bad examples were Snow White's Evil Queen, um, Maleficent and we're talking about Stardust which while a, a modern novel is obviously using you know familiar archetypes and things Dracula's um, Brides uh, I know someone mentioned Tangled and the idea of mother, the mother keeping Rapunzel locked up so she can stay young they're all very very old sort of stereotypes and they come from old stories or if they're modern if they're modern tales, then they're retellings of old stories, where a lot of the things we're talking about, like the White Witch, Trunchbull, Umbridge, Mom from Futurama, uh, Cersei Lannister, they're all very modern. So hopefully we are moving towards a, a better state of, of villainesses in, in our current reading, which would be a fantastic thing to see. Yeah, definitely. And then, um, you know, speaking of a good example, um, you know, I'd like to say kudos to um, Blomkamp, the South African filmmaker who in Elysium, which unfortunately wasn't a very good film, but <laughs> it has this megalomaniac kind of 
baddie who is Jodie Foster, and she is always awesome. Um, but uh, the, the bit of trivia is that he originally wrote it for a man, and you know, kind of linking back to way back when Lucy was saying how she, you know, just kind of automatically just made peripheral characters men without really thinking about it. He kind of did that, and then just went, "Well, why the hell couldn't it be a girl? You know, why couldn't it be a woman?" And he got Jodie Foster to do it, and um, it, it's that kind of thing where we really do want to see villains and protagonists and you know anyone who could be a male or a female and it and it doesn't really matter their gender doesn't really matter and i know obviously that gender does matter in in the world and society but it would be great to see more of these villains who could easily be played by men as well as women Absolutely. And I think so long as they don't make the mistake we were talking about previously in Virgins about just taking a male character and slotting a, a female into it, I think it would be fantastic to see some more well-rounded villainesses that are going to not simply rely on their, their sexuality, but are going to be or, or be defined by it rather, um, but are definitely going to be strong but very flawed and possibly very cruel women. So we want to see more Umbridges, we want to see more Trunchbulls, and quite a few more Cersei Lannisters, please. Does that sound about right? Sounds about right to me. Definitely. Fantastic. And with that, I think that seems like a good place to wrap up our discussion for today. Thank you very much for listening to us, dissecting both virgins and villainesses, and join us again soon on Breaking the Glass Slipper. <laughs>